This is a Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now when he had concluded all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion had a servant who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when he came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, that the one whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built a synagogue for us. Then Jesus went with him, or with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority and have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returned, turning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these things that have been recorded so that we could learn and grow and understand you better so bless us today with that understanding and that wisdom from above in jesus name amen you may be seated faith under authority uh, the works of jesus here as we are reading through the gospel of luke are to demonstrate his authority and his identity. And so, as we've read here, we're going to see another angle uh, to faith that we're maybe not uh, used to hearing or seeing. You know, it's interesting when uh, we're exhorted uh, by pastors in particular, maybe, uh, who raise their voice when they want to exercise faith, you know. As if the volume of our voice can change things, you know. And we, we get these ex exhortations uh, to believe God for great and mighty things, which I'm guilty of ex exhorting you in doing. And it's a good thing. Um, I just think it's important that we understand this angle that is presented to us this morning. It's not, it is very important to understand not only who Jesus is, it's just as important to put our faith in him. We can have this head knowledge of him, but are we really trusting him? And that's what this is about this morning. I think Luke's gospel, as you read through it, he is demonstrating who Jesus is and encouraging the Gentile audience that he's wanting to reach uh, to put their faith in him. He really illustrates um, two, really, of the or mentions it anyway, um, the threefold ministry of Christ. Actually, he, this whole one is the, the first part of his ministry as Messiah. The other two, uh, as we'll mention here, uh, will be are being fulfilled now one, and the other will be filled, fulfilled in the future. But it's important that we understand the mission of the Messiah. 
And uh, he, as we know, he reached out to the Jewish nation and the Gentiles ate the crumbs that fell from his table <laughs> during his earthly ministry. The Jew first and then the Gentile. That was the, God's order. And this order, this angle of faith is important that we understand God's order. Uh, he has a chain of commands and he goes by this. And this centurion, uh, this Gentile foreigner in the land of Israel, uh, illustrates this principle that we need to understand. Now as you look back and you, you sort of like, okay, why is this mentioned here? You always have to interact with the text. So what, why, why is this put here? And as you, uh, those of you who are reading ahead and are familiar with chapter 7, after uh, these two, uh, beginning in verse 18, we're going to get the messengers from John the Baptist. So it, it, is, it appears uh, Luke is putting this story, which is not... Uh, uh, is in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, about the centurion, but the, the story of the raising of the widow's son is not. So as you look at this, what is Luke trying to communicate to his audience? Well, one obviously is this faith is an important thing, the, and to, for the people to know who Jesus really is, that he is God and he has all authority, but also uh, to those who would come uh, from John asking questions about the identity of Christ. And so this is uh, possibly why it's mentioned in this order here. Um, obvious, the power that Jesus exercised to perform miracles should confirm his identity. And I think that uh, should not be overlooked. The ministry of Christ uh, was not how people imagined him to be. And this is why it was hard for them to really, is this really the Messiah? And it's, we're no different, you think about it. The, the first century people uh, had their ideas of what Messiah would do. You know, you, they had, were familiar with the Old Testament. They were waiting for the hope of Israel. And they had in preconceived ideas on how the Messiah would act, what he would do, and what he would be like. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, first of all, he's not, as the Bible says, he's not the most handsome guy. He's just kind of an average Joe. He doesn't stick out because he's tall, dark, and handsome, you know? <laughs> Um, and he's saying things that had never been spoken before, and he's doing things that had never been done before. So there's like, what? He could be. And so, even, you know, he, this even affected, as I said, referred to as John the Baptist. Like, are you the one, or should we look for another? I mean, and don't we do the same thing? Like, we, we've got these prayer requests. We've got these things that are so deep within us that we just are, want God to do. We want God to to just do what only he can do in our lives. And so we think, well, he could do it this way. He could do it that way. And so we have these preconceived ideas, and sometimes we're actually stumbled by the way God does it. And, and you find this throughout the scriptures, you know. I mean, we, you, know, you think about um, Naaman, who had leprosy. And so he is told by the little slave girl, you know, well, if you just go to... Israel and talk to the prophets, you could be healed. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea to me, you know. So on the way there, he's thinking, you know, he'll probably come out and he'll wave his hand and, you know, act like one of these television evangelists. <laughs> get, get all drama, drama filled, right? Yeah, just go dip into Jordan seven times. Really? That dirty river? Are you serious? 
And he's blown him off. But you, you, you get the point. We have preconceived ideas on how God ought to work, and sometimes it's offensive to us. But that's really, why does God do that? That would be a good question for us to answer. Are we humble? Are we receptive? Are we trusting? See, those are checkpoints for us. But as I referred to this threefold ministry, I think we should be familiar with what, who, in discovering who Jesus is, but what, what should we be expecting? What's to come? What is really, is Jesus done ministry? Was his earthly ministry, was that it? Did it end there? Oh, no. But his first coming, he fulfilled the role of the prophet. The threefold ministry of Christ is he is the prophet, he is our high priest, and he is the king. He is all three of those, but he's not performing all of those at one time. He came as the prophet, according to Deuteronomy. We'll pull that one up. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, tells us that the Lord, your God, speaking by Moses, he will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. You shall hear him according to all you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and put my words in his mouth and he will speak them to speak to them all that I command him and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name I will require it of him so Jesus has come as the prophet to the people fulfilling the word of the Lord now his role as priest is given to us actually in detail in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, 1 through 11. And you can look that up. We won't take the time to go in there. But he is our high priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek, which in and of itself is a mystery. He is now at the right hand of the Father. He is performing this ministry as our high priest. Not only is he our high priest, but before he became our high priest in exercising that ministry, he was also the sacrifice for our sins. But now he's there interceding for us. For the last couple thousand years, he's been interceding for his people, praying for us. He's standing in the gap as our advocate before the Father. So when you get accused by Satan before the throne, Jesus is there saying, I died for him. I got him covered, Lord. Father, he's mine. He's yours. We've got him covered through the blood. Isn't that a great place? He's on our side. God is for us. He's not against us. And that's important for us to understand. Because sometimes when we get beat down and lied to, do you get beat down and lied to? Sometimes you don't even know you're being lied to. You hear these voices. You know, you hear your own thoughts, this echo chamber within our minds. <laughs> you know, like, does God still love me? Am I saved? You know, all kinds of questions that can come in our minds because we think about our failures, things that happened to us. But he's our advocate. He's there praying for us, interceding for us. But at his second coming, that's all going to change. He's going to rule and reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And nothing's going to stop what's coming in that regard. He will destroy the, his enemies with the word of his mouth. And he will establish his kingdom. He will rule and reign on this 
planet out of Jerusalem for a thousand years, and then shortly thereafter we'll enter into that eternal state with a new heaven and a new earth. But here, as we read through the Gospels, it is has the prophet, has God's spokesman uh, to do the work that the Father needed done in revealing himself to his people. Now, as we work through this passage, and we've seen this different angle of faith that we must understand, it really reveals the, the need for us to understand authority, which is somewhat mysterious to us, of course. But there's this established chain of command that's being communicated by the centurion. And so let's turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. For those of you who failed to bring your Bible, you don't flunk or anything, but you should bring your Bible to church. You should always have your sword with you. Never leave unarmed. <laughs> right? But you might have a device and you're welcome to use that. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 24 through 28 touches on this chain of command uh, that has been established by God. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of the Father, God the Father, when he puts an end to the rule of, and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet, but what when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is, is expected, accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So we see Jesus in the subordinate role, as it were, to bring about order in this chaotic fallen world. That was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It was his job to come, make sacrifice, make atonement for us, and to, to bring order that was brought into the world through sin and destroy this chaos. That's going to happen. And in doing so, God established the order. He made man. And then from man's side, he brought forth a woman. And then their responsibility was given to populate and take dominion over the earth and raise lots of children. And so we have the order that's established. You can read this in Ephesians. Christ is the head of the woman. And then we have the children, and we work our way down, right? So there's that order. Why is this authority established? It is for the sake of order. God puts things, and he works through this chain of commands. So it's important that we understand authority in this uh, context. That, you know, you follow the chain of commands. That, now, there is no one in the chain of command on this side of heaven that is perfect. So what we have to do is we have to learn to respect the position uh, of the office, if you will. Pastors are not perfect, but they're to be respected. Presidents of the United States are not perfect, but they have an office that needs to be respected. There is an order. There is a chain of commands. We must respect authority. And um, again, this is uh, how uh, order uh, is established and chaos is put away. So it is mysterious. But as we get into this here uh, story uh, of Jesus uh, healing this servant, um, we remember that Capernaum is the uh, village of comfort is what it means. And, and it's amazing if you get out your little Bible map and you look at where Capernaum was located, it's in that northwest corner, uh, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee. And it's right 
on the path of the uh, Via de Mar. Uh, and that is uh, the, the trade route that ran from Egypt all the way up to Syria. And so it makes sense that Jesus would be right in the middle of the flow of traffic. There would be, of course, a lot of Jews and Jewish people that lived there. They're in the nation of Israel. But you'd also have a tremendous flow of Gentile people because there were tra- it's a travel route. It's a, and uh, Jesus is not just the savior of Israelites, right? He's the savior of the world. He will save his people from their sins. And he came to save us all. So he put himself placed himself there uh, by the Via uh, uh, de Mare, the way of the sea, uh, that, that travel route. He uh, is ministering there, and uh, as we've read, uh, the centurion's servant was sick and ready to die. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like being sick, and I don't, I'm sure you don't either. But it is one of those things in life that it is... It is a it is a, hel- a state of helplessness. Can you heal yourself? Doctors are only limited in what they can do. It's probably one of the most helpless feelings that we can experience as a human being to be sick, where you are immobilized and you're unable to change what's going on in your body. And in this situation, um, Matthew eight six says that he was paralyzed. So we're not really sure exactly what uh, malady uh, had taken his servant, but it tells us there that he was dreadfully tormented, as we've read here as well. Um, now let's just think about that for a moment. You're, most of us can relate to being sick, really sick, That's, and then thinking that you're going to die, and you don't want to die. And then taking that a step further, that you have not made peace with God. Imagine how tormented that soul would be. You're sick, you, you can't move. You, you, there's just no way out of this situation unless there's an intervention of some sort, either by a doctor or by miracle. And that you are going to die and you're not sure what's going to happen after that. In fact, that's what Job talks about. He calls death the king of terrors. The, the most frightful thing that can happen to an unsafe person is death. And so this, this is where I think this centurion servant was at. He was tr- dreadfully tormented. I'm trying to describe that, trying to get my mind around just what that means. I've not experienced dreadful torment. But I, I think it's somewhere along those lines. Serious pain, mental and physically. The centurion had heard about Jesus. And this is why, again, this is, how did he hear? Well, everybody's talking about, I mean, what this guy's doing. What's going on? And there's a buzz, if you will. There's an excitement within the nation of Israel. He had heard about it. His, his post, his outpost was there in Capernaum. And so... Uh, He's a centurion, which means he has uh, control over about 80 to 100 guys. You know, centurion, century, 100 years, you know, you get it. And um, so he, he, he understands. Uh, Josephus makes a comment about centurions. that They were the best of the lot, in so many words. Uh, they were high-character guys. They weren't filled, overinflated with themselves because they were people who were in charge of cohorts, 
and then above the cohorts were the legions. Uh, so you have that thing going on. So they were they were under authority, but they didn't, and they had a lot of authority, but they didn't were not the ultimate authority. And so you, uh, they were a good lot, according to Josephus. And this fellow uh, sent elders. Now, when you read uh, the previous story in Matthew, it's a little different. You actually, when you read Matthew, you have, it's like the centurion himself is talking to Jesus. But apparently that's not what really happened. So when Matthew is presenting um, it, it, the story in a different way, probably in a sweet and condensed form, <laughs> if you will. But the point here is that he sought the Lord. He had heard about Jesus and he sought the Lord. How can you miss that point? That's one of the most important things to do when you're in need. Whether you're sick or whatever the need might be, you seek the Lord. When you get into a situation daily, we have stuff that happens to us daily, weekly, and you get into a place, invariably, all of us are going to have this happen this week. You're going to be in a place of need. And you're going to either look to yourself, you're going to look to man and someone else to help you, and depending on what level of need that may be. But ultimately... Should not we go to the Lord first? Isn't, isn't prayer really the first thing that should happen in our lives? We, be, we seek the Lord because we know that he can meet our needs. And that's an important lesson here. But he, in his prayer, through these representatives, he's expressed to them his heart and his situation. So they're going to convey that to the Lord. It says he was be- begging earnestly for help. What kind of prayer life do we have? Oh, well, you know, if you don't mind helping me, Lord, I would appreciate it here. <laughs> you know, is there, this, is there a casualness that's not appropriate? Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, you've got to get down on your knees with every prayer that you pray. I don't really think the bodily position is the most critical part when it comes to prayer. There is something to be said about getting on your face and eating dirt and praying. I, you know, that can illustrate desperation, and that's okay to be desperate before God, but there needs to be a respect. There needs to be a, I care about this. This is important to me type of approach. And that's what we're talking about here where he says, he earnest, begging earnestly for help. Now, this is coming out of a need for someone who is very precious to him. And that's not to uh, be overlooked at all. He's of great value. Our loved ones, the people that we work with, they should be important to us. And this is, this is not, so you can see that this prayer is not something that's based out of selfishness. There's a need here that nobody can fix. Not doctors, not his physical body can't even repair itself. We need intervention here beyond the norm. And only, we believe Jesus can help. We believe God can help. This is a great exhortation to us to pray. And so, the representatives that he sent, the elders of the Jews. So he's kind of following the chain of command here. I'm a Gentile. I have no right to be here in a sense. I'm a foreigner. And the Messiah, the prophet here is Jewish. I need to have the leaders of the synagogue. He's got that down. He understands that order. I... Would pr- it would be best, the right thing to do here is to have them go and talk to the prophet. Because I'm not, as he'll say here, I'm not worthy. He's Jewish. 
They have access to God. They have the oracles of God. They have the preeminence with God. I'm just a Gentile. A good understanding of himself. Of course, they, they're not really trying to butter up Jesus, so to speak. Well, you know, he's a deserving guy. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue. I mean, look at these works. Please do this because he's a good guy. Well, I think, again, that's not a, not a bad thing. Uh, when it comes to um, listing our things that we've done, I'm looking for Hebrews six, like it is, uh, God is. Uh, this is Hebrews six ten through twelve. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end. That you not become sluggish, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So this is the point. In your life and in my life, God is well aware of all the things that you're doing. We don't have to announce to the world and, and let them know all the good works that we're performing It's best, as Jesus said, do that in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. God was well aware of what this centurion guy had done and what he was doing and how he he conducted himself. But that's not why he's going to heal his servant. He uh, healed for his own glory and for his own purposes. That's, he's going to heal his servant because this centurion trusts him. He believes in him. And also because he wants to teach us a lesson, right? You need to understand the chain of command. You need to understand what true faith looks like. First of all, he knows in his heart by these words that he spoke that God is all-powerful. God can do this. All you have to do is say the word. Wow, he's acknowledging the authority that Christ has been given by God. He's a prophet, and that prophet has been given authority and power to demonstrate the power of God. So he knows that God is all-powerful. He understands that Jesus has been placed under authority. Notice he says, I'm a man placed under authority. That's important. It's important for you and I to understand our place. We are placed. We didn't earn it. God put us in that position that we are. We need to respect that. And then, of course, he illustrates it, giving commands to come and go and things that need to be done. And I love the way Jesus responds uh, to this message uh, because he later on realizes, you know, Man, let me rethink this. You know, I think I overstepped. I really probably shouldn't have asked the elders to go. Probably put them out a little bit, and they had busy schedules and blah, blah, blah. He's just rethinking. It's like, so he doesn't send soldiers to Jesus. He sends, he's got friends. I'll just send the friends, look, Jesus, don't bother. You see, there's a little more personal touch on this. If you send soldiers, that's more like business, right? 
But if you sense friends, that's intimacy. That They know what's going on in my life. This is my servant, probably some of his friends. And he just wants to um, express, look, you know, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. You know, and he explains that chain of commands that he understands so thoroughly. And I love this because Jesus responds to that. You know what? You know how to get God's response? You know how to put a smile on the face of God? Isn't that amazing that we can actually put a smile on the face of God? When we trust Him. When we, when we do the right thing before Him. And Jesus responded when He heard this. It says that He marveled. That's, pretty, that's a pretty astonishing thing when you think about it. You get... You can make God marvel. Now, we marvel at him all the time, right? Like, whoa, you pull that one off, right? And we get, we're amazed by God. And that's really what the word means. It means amazed, to be astonished. Extraordinarily impressed. <laughs> that's what Jesus was at this guy's faith. And it's, you realize that Jesus only marveled, it was recorded, he only recorded, uh, marveled twice in the Gospels. And this was one of them. This great faith of the centurion, but also in Mark 6, 6, the great unbelief of the Jews. Isn't that amazing as you put those two in contrast to one another? The people who should have great faith because they've got the oracles of God. They've got the Old Testament scriptures. They've got all of what they should understand that the Messiah was going to be right before them and taught from the scrolls of the Old Testament through the synagogue and through the teaching there. And yet, they don't believe. And yet this foreigner, this Gentile, this ceremonially unclean person who can't go into the inner court because that's reserved for the Jewish people, he believes. Tremendous faith. Jesus was impressed. May God give us that kind of faith that impresses God, that puts a smile on his face. Amen. Amen. To just simply believe him for great and mighty things that are beyond us. Why? Because we understand that God loves us. God loves us. It's beyond comprehension that God loves us. He's for us. And he's willing You know what Jesus did after all this was contemplated and he heard the message? How he did it, we don't know. But he said the word. How do we know that he gave his word? Because when those friends got back home, his servant was healed. You know, God doesn't boast. He doesn't brag. He just quietly goes about his business. And you know who his business is? You. That's why so much of what God does in our life is unknown to us. You really, we really need to pay attention. Think of all the things that we're protected from. Think of all the provision that God gives us. Oh, it's just quietly taking care of his children. That's the humble God we serve. Now verses 11 through 17, we have this demonstration of power. It's one thing to demonstrate and have the illustration of faith and that power released through that faith, but here is something that was actually not even asked for. It was just an 
a fulfillment of Scripture. And that's really what Jesus is about. Verse 11 says it happened that the day after, he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And so he, who was dead, sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all of Judea and all surrounding re region. So Nain, is the, this is the story of this miracle, is the only place that it's mentioned. Uh, you can look up Nain. I like to look up names and their de definitions. I sort of have a, an affinity towards that, as you know. Uh, and you can get a variety of uh, definitions for Nain, uh, defined as the eye, that's interesting, it's defined as beauty in one place, pleasantness, <laughs> on the other side of it's uh, a dwarf, some things that are dwarfed, so take your pick, <laughs> depending on what point you're trying to prove, right? <laughs> You know, that's what happens so much with pastors. You know, you pick and choose because, you, you know, you have this little confirmation bias, right? You're trying to slide in there. It's like, yeah, don't, you got to be careful with that. Uh, so nothing special. It's just name. <laughs> uh, it's near the gate. It's a bigger city, so you, you, you know it's a large town. This is, this is about a day's journey. It's about 25 miles from, from, from Capernaum. And then you can kind of get a feel for how Jesus' ministry was conducted. They're walking. There's no taxis, right? And then as he walks, you know, the disciples are with him, obviously. But then, you know, people, hey, you know, they're going to tag along. Jesus is a pretty interesting guy to hang around when you say, I just have, I think I'll take a day off. I'm just going to walk with Jesus, you know. You can see that would be fun. You know, I would have, how many of you would like to have been part of that large crowd, right? And uh, they enter... Uh, we know it's a city, it's a bigger city because it has a gate, and, and that's a, a lot going on at, at city gates, as we know from the Old Testament. And this dead man's uh, being carried out to his grave. Uh, this coffin is not like uh, the coffins that we're probably used to seeing. This is um, the Soros, actually. No relation to George, but, uh, excuse me. Um, but that's the Greek word, Soros. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I was just sort of right to come, up, just come out there. It's a stretcher. Uh, so it's an open thing. He's laid on top of this um, uh, like a portable cot. And that's how they would take them to the, to the grave sites. And so as they come through this gate, the large crowd and Jesus and the disciples meet them right there at the gate. And he sees, Jesus sees the mom. She's probably out front uh, of the uh, retinue that's taking him to the grave site. And the Lord saw her. I just think that's powerful. 
he no doubt saw the tremendous pain that she was in. Remember, we've mentioned this so many times. We have to remind ourselves, Jesus is drawn to the broken, drawn to those that are in pain. He understands. You know, he saw her. Do you think God's aware of your life and your pain? Do you think anybody that's going through pain and sorrow and suffering escapes the attention of God? They do not. Now, I can think of some pretty horrendous things that are going on in this world and some pretty heinous crimes that are being committed against humanity. And I know one thing for sure. God is aware. God knows. God sees. And God cares. I don't know how he's going to take care of all this. But I know that our God is a God of compassion. This is what it says here. He had compassion on her. Do not weep. This is, we're talking about a God that has compassion with power. To change things in a moment of time. So, he came. He touched this platform, this buyer. As it's called, this open coffin. You know, he just, you know, no doubt he, he's speaking to the woman, which stops the procession. And out of respect, the, the guys just are there. And then Jesus touches. As I love the order here, he saw, he had compassion, he came, he touched. Think about it. He sees, he cares, he's coming to meet your need. He will touch you. He will minister to the need in your life. Now, we have no record of her praying. It's very possible it's her son, so he would have say that he's dying at a young age. No doubt she's prayed. Lord, heal my son. Save my son. God heard that prayer. Her expectation was not met. He died. <laughs> but I say in the end, her expectation was more than met. And if you feel your prayers and the answers to those prayers have been delayed, do not lose heart. The story's not over. The chapters, not, All the chapters of your life are not written. Trust God. He'll touch you. I think God has moved with the needs of mankind. I mean, enough that he gave his only begotten son, right? He's moved with in compassion. Especially when there's brokenness and there's such casualties of, of this nature. You know, touching this corpse and this buyer, this that's Soros, this cot carrying this man would have made Jesus unclean. And when it comes to meeting the needs that you and I have, the Lord's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He gets down and he identifies with our fallenness. He comes to us in the midst of all of it. He forgets about ritual, if you will. And he comes to meet the need. And it's important. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He'll come to you. You think you're unclean, you're unfit. Well, he might be. But his grace and his mercy are everlasting. We can never 
sin great enough that his mercy can't cover it, that his grace can't be ministering to that need. They're all inexhaustible. That's the God we serve. He's full of great love, incredible compassion. And as the carrier stood still, I say to you, young man, arise. What power. It doesn't say what the man set up and said, but it's definitely we see the results. You know, God is able to reverse the flow in the direction of your life. He's able to change things in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, if we call upon his name. There's no doubt about that. You know, and I want to close with a little personal story. You know, um, my younger son was on his deathbed. You know, I'm sitting there at 2 o'clock in the morning and I see the, you know, sort of a 10-second flat line in his heartbeat. And so you begin to have this, like, whoa. You know, the frantic movements of the nurses. It's like, Lord, are you going to take my son? Ooh, you can take my son. Could be calm my heart. But he's your son. This is the kind of God we serve. That he hears our cries. It was just, you gave him to me, the Lord gives and the Lord can take away. God chose because of the prayers of the people, the prayers of this congregation, the prayers of people from literally around the world, hundreds of people that prayed from New Zealand to Nicaragua, California to Indiana to here. All that, you know, only eternity will reveal who are involved in that intercessory prayer. You know, you think about how God's going to do things. We have no idea. But we just, we're called to trust Him. We're called to exercise faith and to never doubt. His power, His ability is not limited. Obviously, this widow lady thought it was over. Everybody in that village, it was over. I mean, we're taking him to the graveside. But God had other means. He wanted to be glorified in this. Jesus needed to be revealed to the nation of who he was. They needed to know that he is the Messiah. When God does wonderful things in your life, he's done many of them in mine. As he's, and I'm sure some of you as well, But as God continues to work, it's done so that he might be glorified. Lord, however you want to be glorified, I trust you, I believe you, just be glorified. However you want to express, I trust you for this need. Manifest your purposes. And you look at what happened when God worked, and this is what happened in this situation in that hospital, you know, over 10 years, about 10 years ago. Fear and reverence. The people that took care of my son, the nurses, the doctors, they were blown away from that point forward. 
That 2 o'clock in the morning episode from that point forward was all miraculous. He guided them, gave them understanding what was going on, how to treat it, and within, he walked out of there 10 days later, which they thought he'd be a lung cripple the rest of his life. They were just hoping for that. But God had something else in mind. They glorified God. Every one of them. We've never seen anything like this before. You know, my wife and I, we didn't really understand the magnitude of what was going on and intubation and all those kinds of things. Like, what is this, you know? That's really serious, right? It's like, whoa. They glorified God. Say that. They called them, the hospital people called them the miracle man. Eglin Air Force. But they knew that what had happened wasn't so much of what they were doing. They saw that it was the hand of God. It's amazing what God can do when people pray. And that's why we put so much emphasis on it. I know sometimes, you know, Sunday mornings and it gets a little quiet and it's like, it's a little edgy. Just, how are you going to frame that in your mind? It's just, it's just a quiet time and we honor you because you are the most high. Just process it that way. They recognized the authority of Jesus as the prophet of God, fulfilling his first of three ministries that he will have to, for us. And they were recognized that there was a visitation of God upon the nation, that God had heard their prayers, and the silence of 400 years was gone. God was speaking and God was moving. And you think about what, where we're at in our nation right now. You roll back the clock 50 years ago, what was going on? What happened in the 60s was just so destructive, beginning the destruction of the foundation of our nation, the removal of prayer in 1962, and then the assassination of a good man as our president, and then his brother, and then Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, the hippie movement. What was that? Just a rebellion against the authority because they had gone sideways. And they're still sideways. They've been undermining our freedoms in a substantial way ever since. And we're at that very moment again. We don't even know what bathroom to use anymore. There's so much foolishness going on in our nation. It is time for us to return to prayer. We need a visitation from God like never before. Without that, we are, there's no hope. We have to have a visitation from God. And I believe as God reached out to that generation of hippies who had turned from turned to drugs and psychedelics and all other kinds of things, just rebellion against the establishment, this generation is in the same place. God loves this generation of young people. And I understand where they're at. And I just pray that God will use us to express the same love that was expressed to us when I was that age and, and the love of God was shown to me. May we as the church of Christ open our hearts to minister to these people who don't know their left hand from their right hand in some ways. Believe me, when God hears our prayers and he begins to move in our midst, people are going to know. When the hippies got saved and converted and they did a lot of things, some of them became pastors. I mean, guys were walking around thinking half their brain had been blown away. 
and then they're pastoring a church with, of thousands a few years later, they recognize that is the hand of God. That's the history of Calvary Chapel. God just taking these deadbeats, some of them, lost, severely lost, and transforming their lives, filling them with His Spirit and giving them a mission. There's this, a generation was saved. I was part of that. Some of you were part of that. It needs to happen again. We need a repeat. And so you want something to pray about? Put that on your prayer list. Fear and reverence came upon what these people had witnessed. And when this thing, and God's going to do this, and when it happens, it's going to be a, a, just an onslaught of revival. Is everybody going to partake of it? No. Did everybody in the late 60s and early 70s partake of that revival? No. But a great number will. And God will create, God's going to create, he's going to harvest. He's going to bring souls into the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope you've given us to pray. We've seen you work. We're reminded of your work. That you're able to raise the dead to heal those that are beyond healing, humanly speaking. Nothing is too hard for you, our Lord. We know this. So we receive the instruction this morning that we want to be in submission to you under your authority to know who's above us and, and, and to follow that chain of commands, Lord. Thank you that you're no respecter of persons and that what you've done for many you'll do for all who call upon your name. And so, Father, teach us to pray this way. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I ask, Father, that you would meet every one of the needs that are here this morning. They're unspoken, but they're not unknown. You know all things, Lord. Some of them have been praying for certain things for quite some time, and I pray, Father, that you would give them hope and strength and courage and show them a token for good, Lord, and bless their lives. Bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?